According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn as we get started to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. We are looking at the angel Gabriel's appearance to the Virgin Mary. We have spent two weeks on Mary herself in a variety of topical studies and uh, surveys, particularly as they relate to the Mariolatry of the Roman Church and, and others. We're going to actually take our time this morning to look at the text of this passage and break down some vocabulary for you and uh, present it as such, and then we'll be prepared to move on to the next section in the outline. All right, before we begin, though, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege and blessing we have this morning to assemble together and receive instruction. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us as we study the word of God. Protect us, shield us about, Father, and uh, set aside distractions. Give us concentration upon the material. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are dealing with the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary which is the second section in your Harmony of the Gospels. If you have, I guess we need to get more copies of that printed off too. Uh, does everyone have a Harmony of the Gospels that we put out? No. Okay. We'll get some more of those run off. We had some notes at one time available, and uh, we need to get some more copies made. Uh, but in following the outline of the, of the Harmony, we start with a section called Introduction to Jesus Christ, which had three parts to it, uh, beginning with Luke's Introduction. Uh, from Luke 1, 1 through 4, moving on to the pre-incarnation work of Christ from John 1, 1 through 18, and then looking at the genealogies from both Matthew and Luke. The second broad section of the uh, harmony of the Gospels focuses on the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. And uh, that's where we are in the midst of right now. I do not believe I have an example up here to show of that harmony, although I do know that it was a part of the, uh, of the, uh, through the Bible, so I know I can find one there. We, uh, published that uh, Harmony of the Gospels in the Through the Bible notebook. Uh, we republished it again in this uh, Life, of Dave, uh, Life of Christ series, and then we've also had it available as a separate handout altogether for different projects that we've worked on and so forth. Uh, essentially, the, the broad uh, outline comes from uh, the uh, Nelson's uh, book of maps and charts, uh, somewhat modified with the dating system based on Harold Honer's uh, chronology work that he's done for Dallas Seminary and for the uh, uh, for BIMSAC. Our through the Bible uh, notebook here. There we are. Harmony of the Gospels is one of the appendixes at the back. I don't. Thank you. You probably would let me do that all day long, wouldn't you? You like looking at video one. Thank you. There it is. There it is. All right. And of course, it's a daylight hour, so there's no way you're going to read any of this. Um, that's too light, isn't it? 
We started off with this first section, Introduction to Jesus Christ, which had three areas to it, and we are now dealing with the second section, Birth, Infancy, and Adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist, um, taking us from even up to 7 B.C. or 6 B.C., uh, 5 B.C. for the birth of Christ, uh, on down to the uh, events in Nazareth. 17 different uh, elements of this, of this section, and we are in the midst of section number two right now. Uh, in that harmony of the Gospels. All right. Dealing with Luke 1, 26 through 38 now, the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. That's the sixth month uh, of Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the context of this, After Elizabeth becomes pregnant in verse 24, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now in the sixth month, so the immediate context of the passage, we understand that this is related to Elizabeth's pregnancy and the uh, pending birth of John the Baptist. So she is now six months along. She is nice and pregnant, very large, very obvious, and uh, Mary will be able to travel to her and, uh, and be there uh, prior to the birth of the Baptist, and we will see that here in this chapter. So in the sixth month, verse 26 again, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. This is, uh, this is Hail Mary, full of grace right here in this verse, and we'll break that down for you. Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. There's the explanation. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary then said to the angel, verse 34, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And we'll deal with that phrase there as well. Um, And we'll spend some time on that here this morning. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All right, this is the passage we're going to deal with in this outline. And we'll start with the land of Galilee. So point one in your study. The land of Galilee was virtually ignored in the Old Testament. The land of Galilee was virtually ignored in the Old Testament. Part of the startling changes when we go from Malachi to Matthew, when we go from Old Testament to New Testament, there are all of a sudden things that we never heard of before 
having just read through the Old Testament, uh, things like Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, they're unknown in the Old Testament. Uh, the the uh, uh, territory of Galilee, for example, unknown. Even, even the particular names for the geography are all new, uh, reflecting as they are the administrative divisions of the Roman Empire. The Romans are unknown in the Old Testament. So we find uh, this is a part of... Uh, what has to go into background studies for gospel studies to orient ourselves to the geography and orient ourselves to the, the day and age in which the gospels occur. There is, however, subpoint A, one significant prophecy addressed Galilee of the Gentiles. And that is a prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And so that's where we're going to turn and we're going to look at it here this morning. One significant prophecy addressed Galilee of the Gentiles. And I'm going to have a map for you here. I don't recall which slide I put the map on. But you should have a map on the... I'm sure most Bibles these days have maps in the back of them. And one of them is typically titled Palestine in the time of Christ or something like that. And so you'll have at least a basic map to look at if you do not have uh, more detailed Bible atlases and things available. But join me in Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, if you want just my, my rough map, anybody can do this. <laughs> uh, blank that out there for a moment. Nope. There we go. In terms of the uh, land of Israel, I tend to draw the coastline like that. You've got the Mediterranean Sea out here. Um, Egypt, of course, is down here. And uh, we got the River Jordan, Sea of Galilee, River Jordan, Dead Sea, and then on out to the uh, on out to the Gulf and the Red and the the Red Sea down there. All right, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, Red Sea. All right, um, as they're broken down for us in the Gospels, when you're doing an Old Testament study, you're focused on a lot of different areas, but primarily you're focused in here on Jerusalem where the, the focal point of most activity takes place, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, but in, in your Old Testament studies, you're, you're uh, also more concerned with breaking down into the individual tribes, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe of Manasseh. You're breaking down tribes. The tribes aren't as, as prominent in the New Testament. They do exist in the New Testament, but they are not, and they're not lost or missing or anything. But... Um, the, as far as the geography is concerned, in New Testament geography, what we're really concerned with is the, is the uh, particular regions. And so we have the region of Judea down here, where Jerusalem is centerpiece. We have the region of Samaria. And then the region of Galilee. As such. Across the River Jordan, you have the region of Perea. Um, there are uh, portions across the Jordan that are also considered Galilee over here. Uh, but north and northeast of here is a region called Decapolis. All right. So that's your basic New Testament geography or Gospels geography of this particular region. Uh, I should probably also add the Gentile region in here of the uh, Phoenicians. 
And Christ had one journey out there to the Syrophoenician region and healed the woman out there and so forth. So, um, these aren't necessarily broken down into tribal areas. These are administrative areas. These are uh, divisions that were imposed upon them uh, by Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and, and most recently, Rome. Okay? Now, if... Uh, We'll just hold off on that for a moment. We put ourselves back into Old Testament times. When after the, uh, after the uh, divided kingdom, after Solomon, when it was split in the south and the north, you had Israel to the north, ten tribes, and you had Judah to the south, two tribes. All right? Remember your Old Testament history now? And... Ten of the, uh, the tribes became the northern kingdom of Israel, and their capital was eventually Samaria. Southern capital of, Ju- uh, of Judah was Jerusalem, with Judah and Benjamin there. And if you will recall, the, uh, in 722 B.C., the uh, Israel was swept away by Assyria. The Assyrians loved to conquer, and when they conquered a territory, they would take the inhabitants and drag them off. In fact, quite brutally so. Well, what happened was, not only were the ten northern tribes swept away, but also in the years following, um, other, other people were planted in that had been conquered elsewhere, primarily in the east, the areas of Elam and the areas of, of uh, what is today modern-day uh, Persia or modern-day Iran and so forth. And they were planted here. And so some Gentiles were planted here in the territory that had been the northern kingdom of Israel. Alright? And a few of the scattering remnants of Israel ended up intermarrying with them and so forth. And different things happened. Now, um, the southern kingdom was not swept away by the Assyrians. They were swept away by who? Babylon. There we go. By Babylon. In between... uh, 722 B.C. and 586 B.C., Babylon had successfully overthrown Assyria and Assyria disappeared from history. But Babylon swept away the northern, uh, the, the southern kingdom. But meanwhile, these Gentiles are still here. All right. Subjugated by the Babylonians, but left in place. Now, when Israel returned under Ezra and Nehemiah, <laughs> they returned and essentially occupied simply this region here. Because this middle region was still filled with a bunch of those Gentiles who by this time had intermarried with enough of the the renegade pagan Jews that they had formed really a blended race and a blended religion. So, down through the intertestament period of time, what we end up with are the Samaritans. The Samaritans are the descendants of this mixed group. And if you want to read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find out some of the problems that occurred there. They, um, they had a form of a Bible, a form of an Old Testament called the Samaritan Pentateuch. They accepted the books of Moses as a legitimate. They rejected all the other Old Testament books, the Psalms and Proverbs and things like that. They uh, set up a, uh, a competing worship center here on uh, Mount Gerizim as opposed to Jerusalem, which is why when Christ was at the well talking to the woman of Samaria, and she says, wait a minute, you're a real prophet. You can answer my question. Is it here or is it in Jerusalem that we're supposed to worship? She wanted Christ to be able to answer the the issue between the two systems, the the Jewish and the Samaritan systems of worship. And um, 
So a lot of this history and a lot of this geography is going to be very important for us in our upcoming studies. So what we end up with, by the time we get to the Gospels, what we end up with is primarily uh, for the Jewish people now, and they're all under Roman government by this time, but the Jewish people, uh, a majority of them are living in the realm of Judea. And at this time, they, they are under the, the Roman governor here, Pontius Pilate, for example. Uh, but there is a significant number of Jews that are living in the Galilean region, and they are under Herod the Tetrarch. Okay? So, and this region in between is primarily Gentile, primarily Samaritan. And they despised one another, absolutely hated one another. As such, when they needed to travel back and forth, it was typical to cross over, come down, and cross back. <laughs> Only when they were in great haste would they actually proceed directly between Galilee and Judea. It was virtually not done. And when, when Christ does it with his disciples, it gives you an idea how quickly they were trying to get out of Judea there at that point after uh, the Pharisees had the Baptist uh, arrested and, and Christ uh, departed into Galilee with his disciples. Um, so this kind of gives you a breakdown on the geography of what we're dealing with. And we will have more maps for you, handouts and so forth in uh, the classes ahead. So, let's look at Isaiah 9, and by now you're there, and I haven't turned there yet. Isaiah chapter 9. We tend to focus on verses 6 and 7 a lot, um, because a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and this is very much a messianic prophecy focusing in on Christ. And two things are happening uh, a birth is occurring and a gift is being given. And notice that there are two phrases here. A child is born, a son is given. And this is quite extraordinary as you break down the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, his deity, his humanity. A child is born, yes, that's humanity. A son is given, as in deity, God the Son uh, enters into this world and is manifest to us. But a child is born, a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. This is now second advent in application. We realize he took no earthly authority in first advent. And his name will be called, I believe that wonderful counselor is a phrase that should not be broken down into two terms, but some translations will break it into two terms. His name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Alright, so that's a fourfold title. If you do uh, put a comma between wonderful and counselor, then you got a fivefold title there. But I think the fourfold is the uh, more natural reading from the Hebrew. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. All right, now there's our messianic promises in verses 6 and 7. But the full context of this passage actually begins with verse 1. So let's glance up to the beginning of the chapter. Because as chapter 8 comes to a close, um, there is distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be driven away into darkness. It's... Uh, it's, it's, the chapter closes with darkness, which forms the introduction now to the promise of light. And that comes in chapter 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. 
In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. I mean, really, look back to the Old Testament and find what heroic things happened in Zebulun. <laughs> look back through the Old Testament and find all the great events of the tribe of Naphtali. All right? You're hard-pressed to find any. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. All right. This is the first and really the only significant promise or prophecy that addresses Galilee, that addresses Galilee in this and called even here Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, the prophecy then commences. Verse two. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Relate this to what we've already studied in John 1 about the light, the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, as at the battle of Midian. Now the problem was, was that the Jews at the birth of Christ, the Jews during the first advent, were, were all excited about breaking the bonds. They were all excited about a political deliverer. They were all jazzed up about an earthly kingdom, but had no spiritual mindedness to accept the light. In fact, they hated the light. And uh, the Gospel of John talks about this as well. Uh, so we'll, we'll show you these issues. They, lo- they wanted the political deliverance. And at one point, they were going to rise up and make Christ their king. After he fed the 5,000 and he multiplied the loaves. And, and uh, what, a, what a great king to have. Somebody that can feed everybody. But they had no interest in the light. And uh, this will become apparent throughout the, uh, throughout the life of Christ as we break it down for you. But continuing on. Uh, you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff off on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. So this is not going to come without great conflict. It's not going to come without a military conquest, peace through military victory. And then the explanation, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And in addition to thinking of this in terms of not only hypostatic union, you could also think of this in terms of of uh, first advent, second advent. First advent, a, a child is born. Second advent, a son is given as he returns in victory and power and great glory. And then the rest of it, as we've already read, the government shall rest on his shoulders, etc. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. There's more work to be done on this, and I won't take the time this morning. Uh, but just bear in mind that term eternal father is uh, one that has bamboozled uh, Christians through the ages. Uh, how does the son become the father? How does God the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, take on a father role? And when does he take on a father role? And uh, things like that we will, we've touched on in the past. We will deal with more thoroughly in uh, classes yet future, should the Lord delay long enough to, to allow us to do studies uh, of that length all right 
This is the significant prophecy that addresses Galilee and the Gentiles. But this prophecy appears to contradict the Bethlehem prophecy. <laughs> you say, wait a minute, what is this Galilee of the Gentiles stuff? I thought that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2. And we will turn to John 7 here in a moment. But before we do, let's just, while we're in the prophets, turn on over to Micah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. All right. Micah chapter 5. But as for you, it says, Micah 5, 2, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. What an insignificant little village, little bread village. Bethlehem is the house of bread. Insignificant little village. Too small even to be considered among the clans. Remember, you have tribes, clans, families in the, in the, breakdown of, in the tribal breakdown of the Federation of Israel. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time, and it goes on, etc. We have the Bethlehem prophecy. You have the Bethlehem prophecy. You have Galilee of the Gentiles. A light shall arise. What, how does this work? All right. When we, turn, when we turn over to John chapter 7, we realize what the dilemma was and how it was not understood. John chapter 7. Remember, prophecy, particularly the Christological prophecies for us, First Advent especially, for us are easy to deal with because we have the advantage of, of, of hindsight. We have the advantage of looking back and seeing the fulfillment. We have a New Testament to compare to the Old Testament. We can say, ha, there is where they were fulfilled. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. All right, we have it in Isaiah, but wow, we got Matthew and Luke, and we find out that, guess what? A virgin conceived and bore a son. We can see the fulfilled prophecies and, and make very easy sense out of out of them, at least out of first advent prophecies. Things second advent that are still future, we still wrestle with and have questions and we, we recognize that things are still in the air in some cases. Um, but putting ourselves back to Old Testament times now, these things are still yet future when you're dealing with a suffering Christ and a reigning Christ. That was hard to reconcile. And the, and the prophets of old made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to determine what person or time the Spirit of God, uh, Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Likewise, you have these apparent contradictions. You know, you've got Bethlehem and Micah, you've got, you've got uh, Galilee of the Gentiles and Isaiah, and if you want to add to that, you can even add Hosea, out of Egypt I will call my son. <laughs> so, man, now what do we do? We're looking at Galilee, we're looking at, at Bethlehem, we're looking at Egypt. It seems kind of confusing. And of course we realize that all of them were fulfilled. Born in Bethlehem, hidden in Egypt, called out of Egypt, raised in, in Nazareth, made his uh, adult appearance having come out of uh, Galilee of the Gentiles at the uh, baptism event. So they were all fulfilled, they were all perfect promises. And we have the advantage of hindsight to see how Galilee, Bethlehem, and Egypt all, uh, all were fulfilled. But if we were 
back in this day, and we have all these prophecies, and we're trying to figure out, well, what is it? You know, what, what's it going to be? And then we might even throw into the mix the uh, the march from Basra, and we'll throw in the things there that are we understand to be second half it with with uh, the the military conquest and the battlefield victories and the and the things there. So, prophetic geography becomes an interesting challenge. Now, in John chapter seven, there is. Uh, and this is the big splash that his brothers wanted him to make. They wanted him to go up at the Feast of Trumpets. I'm sorry, at the Feast of Booths. And they wanted him to make a big public splash, and he wouldn't do it. And uh, he says, in verse 8, he says, Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come. That's verse 8. Having said, said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So they went up to the Feast of Booths. But then he went up privately. Verse 10, not publicly, but as if in secret. He went up privately, not to make a big splash. Because the Feast of Booths is, is going to be a centerpiece of the millennial reign when Jesus Christ will receive tribute and worship from Gentile nations. They will be required, Gentile kings will be required to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths every single year. And if they fail to go and bend the knee to Jesus Christ, they're going to have their reign cut off for the next year. <laughs> good incentive to go and uh, participate in the Feast of Booths. Well, now his unbelieving brothers here want him to go make a big splash at the, uh, at the Feast of Booths. We know that they're unbelievers because of verse 5. And he says, no, I'm not going to do this. So he goes up privately and then he starts teaching and then he starts uh, uh, attracting the attention and then there comes the conflict. And they are really, really stumped. Now, as we just, uh, without reading this whole chapter, uh, verse... 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? The people were starting to catch on because of the power of the teaching. Whereas the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the rulers uh, were still not accepting him as the Christ. But verse 27, however, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. There was confusion on the part of the people. They say, you know, we don't really know where he's going to come from. His origin is going to be unknown. And my, my understanding is because of the confusion between Bethlehem, between Galilee, between Egypt, and perhaps other scriptures as well, uh, maybe a bunch of people just threw up their hands and said, oh, well, there's just no way to know. How do we know? Others, though, as we'll see in this chapter, were very certain that Christ had to be born in Bethlehem. And uh, but then the miracles. Many of the crowd believed in him, it says in verse 31, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Remember, they've been 400 years without a prophet. And now here comes Christ performing all these miracles. Now, um, other things that happen here, but glance on down to verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. And in Deuteronomy 18, Moses promised that God would raise up a prophet like unto himself. Uh, and, and we understand that to be Jesus Christ. Uh, others were saying, this is the Christ. Even there, there was some confusion. Because certain rabbis understood that the, the prophet like unto Moses of Deuteronomy 18 was the Christ. Others said, no, we think there's two different people there. 
That's why when they came to quiz the Baptist, they said, are you, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? And he answered no to all three, even though the prophet and the Christ is one and the same as we understand it. Others were saying this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. All right. That that Galilee thing was was really throwing them, even though you have the Isaiah promise about the Galilee of the Gentiles, a light shall shine forth. Even uh, further down in this chapter, when the Pharisees themselves are debating and Nicodemus steps up, who uh, is a believer and who's already uh, come face to face with Christ back in chapter three. And uh, he says something here about, you know, we've got to get him in to testify. We can't condemn him without having him come in and speak for himself. And uh, in 52, they say, uh, they answer him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. At least in the gospel according to the Pharisees. <laughs> All right. Galilee was a real issue here. So. As we introduce Christ, as we really introduce Mary here, the angel appears to Mary, and she's growing up in Galilee. Like I say, this was not the centerpiece of Israel. That was Jerusalem, where most of the Jews were living was in Jerusalem or the region surrounding there of Judea. The ones that were living up north in the Galilean region were um, typically of the northern five tribes that, that were given that land as their inheritance, were typically... Um, not associated with the priests or the priesthood because they were all down there in Jerusalem. Um, they were farmers, they were fishermen, they were shepherds and so forth. Galilee, even to this day, continues to be the richest, most fertile farmland in, in the region. And um, they were considered illiterate. They were considered unsophisticated, really looked down upon. Uh, by the cultured, educated, sophisticated Jews from Judea. And that's why a lot of times when we have, when we have in the Gospels record of the Jews or the Judeans, what we're doing is we're, we're distinguishing between simply somebody who's racially Jewish, those that were in among the leadership of Israel there in the, in the Judean region. And they look down upon all the rest. Obviously, this Galilean carpenter and his Galilean fishermen were, uh, you know, disciples were to be mocked. And they were mocked in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. I, I kind of refer to Galilee as basically the Kentucky of, of, <laughs> of Israel at that time, you know. And my apologies if you're from Kentucky, but that's just kind of the reputation that uh, Kentucky has. And I just have personal experience with some Kentucky people in times past. As far as that goes. Now, so again, point one, the land of Galilee was virtually ignored in the Old Testament. Subpoint A, one significant prophecy addressed Galilee of the Gentiles, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Yet this prophecy appears to contradict the Bethlehem prophecy. That's Micah 5, 2, and we can compare it to the, uh, the debate that's phrased here in John 7, verses 40 through 43. Subpoint B, oh, there's your map. Worthless during the daytime. Secondly, B. Solomon didn't regard Galilean cities as worth keeping. 
Solomon did not regard Galilean cities as worth keeping. The, 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 the brief handful of times that we have Galilean cities mentioned, and Solomon's giving them away. 1 Kings 9 and verse 11. 1 Kings 9.11. And uh, I don't know. I mean, we did Life of David. It took us three years. I don't know that we'd ever do a Life of Solomon study, but um, it'd be kind of interesting. 1 Kings 9.11. We have the uh, Gentile mentioned here, Iran. Not Iran Marine, but Iran, king of Tyre. And uh, the lumber that he supplied to build the temple and to build Solomon's palace. Solomon must have had a huge palace when you consider how many wives he had. <laughs> All right. Just the harem alone must have been, you know, as big as the Astrodome or something. Hard to say. But it came about at the end of 20 years, reading from 1 Kings 9 and verse 10. It came about at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. And then the parentheses in verse 11. Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold according to all his desire. Then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they did not please him. <laughs> All right. Interesting. Verse 13, he said, What are these cities which you have given me, my brother? So they were called the land of Kabul, that is, worthless or good for nothing to this day. That gives you kind of the impression of Galilee, um, an impression that continued on through the centuries, on to the time of Christ, which is quite Interesting. But Solomon tried to give those cities away. Now, why? And, and part of this also, I think, is indicative of Solomon's, uh, the beginning of Solomon's failures and the, and the, the um, problems there in defying the will of God. Those cities were a part of Israel's inheritance. <laughs> those cities belonged to the tribes of Naphtali and Issachar and Zebulun and, and, um, and uh, Dan, the northern, the northern tribe of Dan there, they uh, were not Solomon's to give away. They were part of the Lord's eternal inheritance to those tribes. Why is Solomon giving those cities away to Hiram, king of Tyre, who himself is a Canaanite? Makes you wonder. Solomon didn't regard the Galilean cities as worth keeping, and then the king he tried to give them to didn't regard them as worth keeping either. <laughs> Which I find interesting. Point C. The Pharisee likewise, there should be Pharisees plural, the Pharisees likewise regarded Galilee with contempt. And at least one apostle had issues with the Galilean village of Nazareth in John 1.46. The Pharisees likewise regarded Galilee with contempt. And at least one apostle had issues with the Galilean village of Nazareth. We already read John 7:52. The Pharisees said, "Look and see that search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee." That was the quote. Almost a, in fact, indications are that it's a proverb among the Pharisees: "No prophet arises from Galilee."
And at least one apostle had issues with the Galilean village of Nazareth. In John 1.46, when Philip comes and tells Nathanael, says, look, we found the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael just snorts and says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, we'll give you some side notes here with respect to this. I go too fast. Are you still writing? I'll back up. The Pharisees likewise regarded Galilee with contempt. Galilee, when I drew this map out here and and showed you how the uh, Samaria was predominantly Gentile, almost exclusively Gentile, almost no Jews lived in that Samaritan region at all. Uh, The Galilean region was kind of a mixture of... uh, uh, Jewish cities, Greek cities, and Roman cities. In fact, the capital of that region um, was not too far from Nazareth, not too far from, uh, called, uh, it was a Roman city called Sipporah, uh, not too far on that trade route through, through the Jezreel Valley there. Um, Capernaum was a Greek city where Christ sets up his headquarters. Um, a lot of, not just Jewish settlements there and cities there, but a lot of Roman and Greek cities that were there as well. The Pharisees regarded Galilee with contempt, and at least one apostle had issues with the Galilean village of Nazareth. All right, now, side note. The Pharisees' proverb is not actually accurate. Elijah and Jonah were both prophets from Galilee. When they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee, they are denying the fact that two of the biblical prophets were in fact from Galilee. Elijah the Tishbite. Tishbe was a Galilean village in the northern, one of the northern tribes of Israel. And Jonah likewise was from Gath-Hefer, it tells us, which was a village of a northern tribe in what would later be known as Galilee. So we have two prophets, minimum, two biblical prophets that we know in the Old Testament were Galileans. And so a, uh, a proverb like no prophet arises from Galilee is uh, on the surface false, but then at, at closer examination appears to simply be Pharisee propaganda to disparage the uh, Galilean carpenter that was gathering a whole lot of attention. <laughs> so here he is and he's performing miracles and he's feeding thousands and he's teaching and he's got a message with authority and the Pharisees have people leaving them. And so here comes some propaganda. No prophet arises from Galilee. It's almost like a, a political slogan. Because on the surface we recognize it's not true. We have two biblical examples, Elijah and Jonah. Some of the better known prophets. When you think about Elijah, you know, he never died, the fiery chariot. You think about Elijah, you think about the prophets of Baal and the great contest on Mount Carmel. All right. And Jonah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a famous prophet for you, you know, the, the, the whale and the ministry in Nineveh and all of that. Later rabbis would admit when you read the rabbinical writings in the uh, Talmud and the other Jewish traditions and so forth, this was a phrase in first century Judaism. No prophet arises from Galilee. But later rabbis would admit that prophets arose from every tribe. Every tribe in Galilee had prophets. Um, 
we probably know, the prophets we know about, either the writing prophets or the non-writing prophets, you know, we know about Elijah, we know about Elisha, we know about Samuel, we know about uh, Ido the seer, we know about uh, Nathan, we know about Gad, we know about um, all the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you know, Hosea through Malachi. But the ones we don't know about that did not write, whose names were not recorded in Scripture, uh, the ones who ministered to the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament times, according to their own traditions, were from every tribe. Zebulun had their own prophets. Issachar had their own prophets. Some of these lesser-known tribes, Reuben, had their own prophets, for example. Now they didn't. They didn't record Scripture. They did not, uh, uh, and, and the names are not recorded in Scripture. But we know that there were many of them. Case in point. Um, as long as I'm in First Kings, let's uh, get back here and look at Elijah. And in First Kings. It's going to be easy to find here. Uh, chapter 18 with Elijah and the contest here. All right. It happened after many days that the word of the Lord, I'm reading from 1 Kings 18. It happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the face of the earth. Uh, Elijah has been out of the public view for three years after he made a public proclamation that your rain is shut off. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, that's a different Obadiah. It's not the Obadiah that wrote the book of Obadiah. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Well, now, who are these guys? <laughs> All right, but there's a hundred of them. And they were the ones that Obadiah was able to rescue after Jezebel had already murdered who knows how many. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land, to the springs of water, to all the valleys, and so forth. But anyway, not to, not to take a side trip, I'll, I guess I'm already on a side trip, but just that verse there, there's a hundred prophets that Obadiah hid by fifties in, in apparently two different caves here. And those were the ones that he was able to rescue after Jezebel murdered how many? Alright, so the prophets we can name are a minority, probably a small minority when it comes right down to it. As far as the prophets, the Old Testament prophets that ministered to Israel during Old Testament times. And according to the traditions, every single tribe had prophets, including the Galilean tribes. Naphtali, Issachar, Zebulun, Asher, and Dan. Alright? Point two. Gabriel comes to the virgin. Alright? Point one, the land of Galilee. It's virtually unknown in the Old Testament. Point two now. Gabriel comes to the virgin. Called here the Parthenos. 
Just some vocabulary on this. Parthenos. P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O-S. Parthenos. P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O-S. Parthenos. 39-33. Gabriel comes to the virgin. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man. All right, so she's engaged, but the wedding has not yet occurred. In some cases, uh, an engagement could be for a period of up to even a year as the arrangements were agreed to by the parents, by the father of the, or the parents of the groom, the parents of the bride, the contracts are sealed, the gifts are exchanged, and so forth. So she is engaged, but not yet married and still a virgin. There is some uh, attack primarily among liberal theologians starting in the 19th century and so forth. Some point A. From the vocabulary of Isaiah 7.14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son in Isaiah 7.14. And the Hebrew is an alma. Alma. All right. The alma of Isaiah 7.14 may be lexically applied to a young woman of marriageable age, whether she is a virgin or not. But the Parthenos is most certainly a virgin. All right. The Alma. That's apostrophe A-L-M-A-H. Number 5959 in the Hebrew Strong's Concordance. The Alma of Isaiah 7.14 may be lexically applied to a young woman of marriageable age, whether a virgin or not. But the Parthenos is most certainly a virgin. Now there are some skeptics and critics and mockers and those that will attack the Scriptures at different points and deny the virgin birth for example. And they will try to use a linguistic argument, a vocabulary argument, or a lexical argument, that just because Isaiah said, Behold, a Alma shall be with child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, does not necessarily mean that um, that it was going to be a virgin. It does not necessarily mean that it was going to be a miracle. Because they can show you places in the Hebrew Old Testament and other Hebrew literature where a Alma was simply a young girl who was eligible to be married and who may not have actually been a virgin. Alright? And so, this is their argument. This is their uh, criticism or their attack. So join me in Isaiah 7.14. Let's take a look at it. Isaiah 7.14. And it is, uh, well, I'll talk a little bit more about translation here in a moment. Because the invitation is made, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as shale or high as heaven. 
The fact of the matter is, is that this is describing a miraculous event. And the Lord invited Ahaz to make the miracle as uh, impossible as he wanted to make it. <laughs> you know, if you're going to ask for a miracle, ask for a miracle. Especially when the Lord is saying you can make it as impossible as you want to make it. And uh, Ahaz refuses and says, oh, no, I don't want to put the Lord my God to the test. All right. What a religious buffoon. He was <laughs> he's putting the Lord God to the test by not obeying the command here to ask for a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. All right. You're not going to ask for it. Let me give you one then. Behold, a virgin, Alma, will be with child and bear a son. That's the miracle. It's described as a sign. Now, if it's if this Alma is not to be understood as a Parthenos virgin, then where's the miracle? <laughs> a young girl's going to get pregnant and have a baby? Big deal. <laughs> that happens all the time. Girls get pregnant and have babies every day. But a virgin getting pregnant and having a baby? It's never happened before. That's the miracle. Hope you understand that in the context of this, that the sign is being demanded and the sign is being provided and this is a miracle as deep as shale or as high as heaven. This is a miracle as miraculous as anything that's ever been done. You know, I, I, I thought the Red Sea was pretty impressive. Right? When Moses lifts his staff and the Red Sea was parted and they walked through on dry ground, that was pretty impressive. Or when uh, Elijah brought back the kid from the dead or Elisha brought back two from the dead. Those were impressive. But as far as all the miracles in Scripture, this one here is described as, as deep as shale or as high as heaven. This is the... And, and, and how, how high is that? That's infinite. As the heavens are higher than the earth, it's, it's an infinite distance. This is the greatest miracle. A virgin shall be with child... And bear a son. That's a miracle. Not just simply a young woman of marriageable age. Strictly speaking, okay, if you want to be in the, in the vocabulary sense, you can find instances where the Alma is not a virgin. And as such, you know, the, 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 the dowry was significantly less. The, the contract had different terms and so forth. Uh, but she was still an Alma if, in fact, she was beyond puberty, able to bear children. She was still a considered an alma all right means post-puberty pre-menopause basically she's of childbearing age eligible to be married eligible to to uh to raise children but there are clearly cases where the alma is a virgin and that is stipulated as i believe the case is here it's interesting to note that in uh in uh some places when the when the old testament was translated into greek all right, in the Septuagint, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, there were occasions where Alma was rendered girl or young woman, and there were occasions where the Alma was rendered Parthenos, and this one was rendered Parthenos. There, there was no question in the mind of Israel when this prophecy was given that this was a prophecy of a Parthenos being impregnated and bearing a child. Um, no question on this whatsoever. All right, even the protoevangelium of Genesis 3:15, even the promise of the seed of the woman 
is a clue to the virgin birth. Because we understand biology, we understand men have the seed, women have the egg, but this seed of the woman will rise forth and conquer. We understand that it doesn't teach the whole virgin birth story, but it is an indicator of the coming virgin birth. All right, so you have vocabulary. You've got Parthenos from the New Testament. You have the Alma from the Old Testament. And even though an, an, an Alma does not necessarily have to be a virgin, and the critic will try to claim that, the Parthenos is most certainly a virgin, and there's no other way to understand the promise. All right? Point B. Mary specifically states that she does not know a man. Luke one thirty four. Not only is she called a Parthenos, a virgin, but then she specifically states that she does not know a man. Or as we would say in today's vocabulary, she is not participate in sexual activity. All right, Luke 1, 27 says, To a Parthenos, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the Parthenos' name was Mary. And then in verse 34, when Mary said to the angel, How can this be? She does not say, How can this be since I am a Parthenos? She says, how can this be since I don't have sex? <laughs> All right. She says, how can this be because Andra U Gnosko? All right. Andra. Let me get my pen up here. This is our word for man, not anthropos for mankind in general, but andros for man, male gender specifically. U, the negative, and then Gnosko. I do not know. Literally. Uh, I do not have sex, is what she's saying. So we have the Parthenos noun in verse 27 twice, and the statement of the activity in verse 34. And the issues there. I'm out of time already. Where does the hour go? All right. Um, we will return to this. Um, We've got the salutation, Hail Mary, full of grace. We'll deal with that. And uh, we'll focus on the remainder of this. We will show how her question is not a, a lack of faith, but a question of amazement. And we'll show some issues here. And, uh, and then how much of the rest of this we'll get into in terms of the nature of the, or the requirement for the, the, for her virginity, for the removal of the human father, for the impregnation of her here, the role of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High. And uh, we may even do an extensive exegesis of verse 35 um, because I believe, and I never heard this before until Ralph Braun taught this, it hit me like a ton of bricks about 10 years ago, that, uh, that the Holy Spirit with the overshadowing was supplying the, the privacy of it all, but it was actually the Father who, who generated the, the uh, impregnation and the things of that there. So we'll spend some time on verse 35 here and uh, break that down for you as well. All right, any questions before we go? Anything at all on Galilee or Nazareth? Or All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. And uh, Father, 
we just thank you for the opportunity we have, the freedom we have in this country to continue to assemble together and in freedom to study the living, abiding Word of God. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.